John chapter 7, beginning with verse 37, mid-chapter, John records that on the last day, that great day of the feast. Now John chapter 7 verse 2 provided us the context, specifically this being the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood and he cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. How interesting we sang that song this morning, Thirst. Jesus continues, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, or literally torrents, of living water. And then because of the nature of this statement being so interesting, John immediately adds for us some commentary. John continues, but this Jesus spoke, in case you were wondering, concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would, and this is a future tense, receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given at this moment because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, because of these things, this statement of Jesus, many of the crowd, when they heard him, they said, truly this is the prophet. Now, we, we spoke of this extensively earlier on in our travels in John, and this is a reference to a, a prophecy of Moses that's recorded in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, of a coming prophet. Truly this is the prophet. Others, though, said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. But some others said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was, John tells us, a division among the people because of Jesus. And, and I find that interesting, right? That divisions occurred between people based on one thing. Their varying conclusions of Jesus in a culture so bent on unification, how interesting that Jesus causes division. Sadly, those that were rejecting Jesus, or at least questioning whether he was the Messiah, were doing so based on a, a lack of understanding. It was true that the Messiah would be of the seed of David, would come from Bethlehem. They're concluding that those are marks against Jesus, when in reality, if they had looked at the details, this further confirmed, because Jesus was what? not only possessing the genealogical records showing that he was from the seed of David, but had been born in Bethlehem. Now some of them wanted to take Jesus, this is by force, arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? Why, why have you arrested him? And they answered, because <laughs> no man has ever spoken like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Talk about being judgmental, right? Well, Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus by night, being one of the Pharisees, said to the crew, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? This was an insult. Are you also uneducated? Search and look. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Now, while John's account of the reaction of the people to what Jesus did and said on that last great day of the feast is rather straightforward. Just simple reading comprehension lets you know that, that there was speculation and division among the common folk as to Jesus' true identity, as well as the reaction of the religious leaders wanting to immediately arrest Jesus by what he did and said. And they would have if not for the intervention of Nicodemus. But what specifically causes this response, this reaction to what Jesus said, it demands a greater discussion about the Feast of Tabernacles. No, John's very specific, isn't he? When Jesus stood and cried out, it was the last great day of the feast. Now first, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three mandatory feasts in the Jewish calendar. The first was Passover, which would occur in the spring. Pentecost would follow 50 days later, 
with tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, taking place after the fall harvest, sometime mid-October, this time of year, during the eight-day celebration of tabernacles. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims would make their way into the city. Jerusalem's population would swell beyond its capacity. Now, the commission of this feast is actually laid out for us in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. You don't have to turn there. Let me read this for you. We're told, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month, this is of the Jewish calendar, shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, and on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. This word convocation, it means a sacred assembly, a gathering in the temple. And you shall offer on this day an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. So the first day and the last day are both Sabbaths, you shouldn't work, and they both possess a holy gathering or convocation. A few verses later, we're also told that on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourself, on the first day, the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the offshoots of leafy trees, the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days." You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths, tabernacles, for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Moses reiterates these things in Deuteronomy chapter 16, writing, quote, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. When you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress after the harvest, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite, the strangers and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days, Moses says, you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God, and the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the works of your hands, so that you surely rejoice. Now, before I continue, I do want to just point out briefly, very briefly, that one of the grand debates concerning the Feast of Tabernacles centers on whether or not it lasted for seven days or eight days. The only reason that this matters at all is that John sets the scene as occurring on the last day, that great day of the feast. Honestly, after researching this topic much longer than I really should have, and then calling David Guzik to clarify his confusing commentary, we spoke on the phone and he made it only more confusing. I spoke with Joe Foch. Also, it was confusing. The truth, seven days, eight days, I don't have an answer for you. You find one, let me know. I read rabbinical studies, the Talmud. Like I went deep into the bowels of the theological internet. And I have no idea if it's seven or eight days. Personally, personally, because Numbers 29 also mentions the eighth day, like Leviticus, outlining similar procedures as the first seven days, I'm of the opinion that the eighth day celebration was part of the Feast of Tabernacles and not its own separate event as some speculate. That being said, I won't be dogmatic either way. Now the purpose of tabernacles was twofold. First, in a practical sense, because this celebration followed the harvest, it was a way for the nation of Israel to gather together and to thank God, to worship God, for his continued provisions that year. While the people had indeed worked the fields that summer, the feast was designed to acknowledge the reality 
that the increase, the blessing, came because of the intervention of God. Aside from this, the Feast of Tabernacles was also instituted by God to remind the children of Israel of his past faithfulness. The past faithfulness of delivering their forefathers from the land of Egypt. And the provisions that God, that God yielded as they were wandering the wilderness for 40 years before entering the land. Now practically, this idea was best illustrated and the fact that those who pilgrimed to Jerusalem were instructed not to check into hotels or live in homes, but to build for themselves booths. If you want like a practical example of what this looked like, Nehemiah chapter 8 records this in practice. They were to live in booths, literally tents. They went camping, they roughed it for this week. One scholar of ancient Hebrew culture writes, quote, These flimly, flimsy booths reminded Israel that they once dwelt in temporary shelters during the 40 years in the wilderness, totally dependent on the Lord. Beyond this, as I mentioned, Numbers 29, verses 12 through 40, specifically articulate the various priestly procedures that were to coincide with each of these eight days. According to first century historian, Jewish historian Josephus, because of the large crowd and all the intricate tasks associated with tabernacles, it took 246 priests to effectively cover all of the duties for the Feast of Tabernacles. And while there were many blood sacrifices that we could discuss, tons of blood offerings that were made, one of the most celebratory elements of each day was what was known as the, the water ceremony, the daily pouring of water. Now, though the instructions in Numbers 29 only refer to this act as a generic drink offering, the Talmud, which is the religious traditions on these matters, added a lot of pomp and circumstance to the daily water ceremony. And bear with me, this is all important. Each of the first seven days, the priests would exit the temple and they would make their way down to the Pool of Siloam, which is located just outside of the southernmost gate of the city, the water gate. And as they're making their way out of the temple down to the Pool of Siloam, there was much thoroughfare, cheering and celebrations. And then when they arrived at the pool, they possessed a large, ornate, golden vessel that they would fill with water. Then, again, as the crowds are chanting, as they're singing the Hillel Psalms, with the shofars ringing loudly, this golden vessel filled with water would be paraded through the city up to the temple. And then upon their arrival, the priests would do something interesting. They would take the water in this golden vessel and they would mix the water with wine before then ceremonially pouring it out onto the altar. Every day they did this. And as the priests are busying themselves with the task of pouring the water out, there in the temple, in the temple mount, in the surrounding areas, people are cheering and singing. The onlookers, it would have been deafening. For each of these seven days, this water ceremony intended to remind the people of God's provision of water from the rock while they wandered the desert during the Exodus. Beyond that, they celebrated that God had provided rain that year so that they could have had a harvest. Now, while the eighth and final day, this great day, would see the exact same water ceremony take place, the Talmud describes one stark difference. Because the last day, and on the eighth day, according to the law, the people have, have exited the booths. They're going to go home after this. Because the last day intended to look forward. So the previous seven, God's provisions that year and in the past, the eighth day is looking forward to a coming harvest. And therefore, God's continued blessings in the next year. On the eighth day, as this ceremony is occurring, there was no celebration. There was no pageantry. Instead, because it was forward-looking, the entire ceremony 
was marked with a solemnness. It possessed a reverence. On this, the last great day of the feast, which was known as Hoshana Rabbah, translated save now, the priests, as they had done the previous seven days, they draw the water from the pool of Siloam, they carry it back to the temple, they pour it onto the altar after mixing it with wine. And yet, in contrast to the previous week, while all of this is happening, instead of the blast of the shofar and the adulation of the crowd, the people would be silent, silently praying that God would continue his blessing by providing another year of life-giving rain for the upcoming crop. The mood was, was reverent, respectful. It was measured as the people collectively appealed for God's future faithfulness. Now, imagine being on the Temple Mount, filled to capacity, with silent onlookers, praying that God would send water from heaven as the priests pour out a, a mixture of water and wine onto the altar. You're there. It's silent. You can hear a pin drop. Your thoughts as you pray naturally go back to God's previous faithfulness. Not just in that year, but when he provided your forefathers water from that rock. Your eyes are closed. You're praying for a similar work when out of nowhere, as the priests are pouring this water out, that solemn moment is abruptly interrupted by a voice booming across the Temple Mount and instantly catching those in prayer off guard is the familiar voice of Jesus, who in this moment of prayer stands up and begins crying out. It's repeated for everyone to hear. He gets himself to a high perch and he cries out. If anyone thirsts, as they're pouring the water out, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. One author writes of this moment, Imagine the uproar his statement must have caused. The priest had just poured out the water libation as an appeal to the Creator God to provide water for the people. And Yeshua, Jesus, as if to answer their prayers, tells the people to come to him for water. What a radical statement and a shocker to the crowd. You can understand why the religious leaders sought to take him by force. There's no question that seizing on such a moment as when the priests are pouring out this mixture of, of water and wine upon the altar with the people praying for God's blessings, that Jesus is making a significant and profound point. In hindsight, we realize that the blessings of God could only be extended to sinful man when Jesus was poured out on a cross for our sins. Jesus was the rock in the wilderness, used by God to provide life-giving water. And what's more is this work, oh, it couldn't happen in these seven days of religion, but could only occur on an eighth day, a day of new beginnings, a day of grace. And it's interesting that it would be John, and not Dr. Luke, who would later record, chapter 19, verse 34, that as the soldiers pierced Jesus aside to ensure he, he had died, immediately flowed what? Blood and water. The wine. Without knowing what they were doing with this very ceremony, a ceremony that mixed water and wine to be poured onto an, an altar, this all foreshadowed the work of Jesus on a different altar known as Calvary. It's interesting that as Jesus watches the masses actively appeal for God's physical blessings through a religious exercise, he can't sit back idly. Jesus can't be silent in this moment. You know, since the Feast of 
Tabernacles was the last of these mandatory feasts until Passover the following April. This is Jesus' last opportunity to speak to the festival masses that had gathered in Jerusalem before he would return that week of Passover and die for the sins of the world. As the water is being poured out, Jesus cries out, appealing for anyone who thirsts to come to him and drink. How amazing. As the essential element of all carbon-based life forms. Water. Water is itself a symbol of life. In fact, if you consider that water makes up about 80% of your body, none of us could live without water. And building off the moment of this water ceremony, Jesus is saying that anyone who desires spiritual life And the blessings of God must be willing to come to him. Not the altar of religion, but him, a person, and drink. Just as a thirsty land needs water to yield a harvest, so does the spiritual man need Jesus to be fruitful. It's not an accident that Jesus ties drinking to the act of believing in him. Do you notice that connection? Belief. Belief, faith, not ritual, not right, not works or religion or tradition. Belief is all that God requires. But then notice Jesus promises something awesome. He says that out of the heart of the one who drinks or believes will then flow rivers of living water. Not only is Jesus telling us faith in him is how such a water is initially received, but Jesus explains that he is offering a drink of something that then has the power to manifest itself as an internal reservoir. It's a drink that then becomes a river. You see, Jesus is offering you a drink of something that self-generates and therefore is self-sustaining making it a one-time drink that will eternally satisfy. Now, while the reaction of those who were present indicate in the moment, they understood, to a degree, what Jesus was offering. That Jesus was offering spiritual satisfaction for a thirsty soul. It's likely that, that those present failed to really comprehend how that was even possible. Okay, Jesus, we understand what you're offering. We just don't know how we get that or how you give it. Which is why, in the moment, John quickly adds context, commentary, for the reader. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. As the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. And then John's like, and so you know what he's talking about. Jesus spoke about the Spirit. Whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, though that statement is very brief, John packs in a lot of important realities into it. Just in a flyby. First, the life-giving water Jesus was offering. So what Jesus is offering, it's not water, but actually the Holy Spirit. So that's what he's offering humanity that thirsts. Second, this spiritual thirst of sinful man, why does it exist? Well, by default and through implication, our thirst exists as a result of not having the Holy Spirit. Man is dead in his sins. Third, that initial drink, how does it occur? Well, according to John, it occurs when those believing in Jesus receive for the first time the Holy Spirit. And it's in that moment that what was dead stirs to life. Four, this river of living water flowing in and then from a person's life is a manifestation of what, logically? The Holy Spirit. And finally, The gift of the Spirit. Note, John says that it has not yet been given. It's a gift. Something you don't earn. Something you can't attain. It's something that must be given. This gift of God could only be given after Jesus was glorified. And this word glorified, it it speaks not of a specific moment, but more of a process. The process of, of glorification, including his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then ultimately 
his ascension and exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Now, because the Holy Spirit is central to Jesus' declaration here on that final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, I want to spend the rest of our time together discussing that important topic. Now, for starters, in the New Testament, our interactions with the Holy Spirit are presented using three different Greek prepositions. First, in John 14, verse 17, Jesus said, quote, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He, of, speaking of the Spirit, He dwells with you. That word with. The word with in the Greek, it's the preposition para. P-A-R-A, if you're a note taker. The word means to come alongside of. Now what's being described here, this work of the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit in the world convicting the world of sin for the purposes of leading the world to Jesus. This para role of the Spirit exists in all of our lives, believer or unbeliever alike. Anytime you've ever experienced that conviction, doing something you knew was wrong. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, present and active. This para-ministry, that the Spirit is with us. Secondly, in the same John 14, 17 verse, Jesus then con continues by saying, for the Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. In the Greek, this preposition, in, in, or in the Greek, en, it means to come within, literally. So we have the Spirit with us, alongside, but then there's this second interaction with the Spirit coming in, coming within, which no doubt describes the work of the Holy Spirit in dwelling the person at the moment of conversion for the specific purposes of salvation and regeneration. It's this second ministry of the Spirit, this interaction, that when it occurs, you are born again. What was dead comes to life. New birth. As it pertains, by the way, to the disciples receiving the Spirit. In John 20, verse 22, we're told that after Jesus' resurrection and one of His interactions with them, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, as mentioned, three prepositions. The Spirit with us, the Spirit coming in us, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's an entirely different Greek preposition. Specifically, I'll read you the whole verse in context. Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And, he, and he's speaking to 120 or so disciples at the top of the Mount of Olives. These are the final instructions before his ascension. And he says, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Which is interesting because he'd just given a great commission to go, right? Jesus says, go out into the world, making disciples of the nations. But, 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 but. Before you do that, go to Jerusalem and just, just, just stay there. And why? So that you can receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So I've given you this great commission. You just don't have something that you vitally need, so go and wait for it. Now in the Greek, this preposition, upon, it's epi, E-P-I. And it means to come over or to overflow. The word describes a unique working of the Holy Spirit, uniquely filling the believer to the point of overflowing from the believer's life. The Spirit is with us. At conversion, the Spirit is in us. But then there's this unique moment when the Spirit comes upon us. Now, it's only logical that we assume this initial drink that Jesus is describing when He cries out to the crowd. That the initial drink occurs when those believing in Jesus initially receive the Holy Spirit, right? This second interaction with the Holy Spirit. And yet the manifestation of the river of living water now flowing in and from a person's life appears to directly tie into this third epi-interaction. And note, the scriptures indicate, pretty ironclad, that this third interaction with the Holy Spirit is not limited 
to a one-time occurrence, but instead seems to be a continual experience of the believer. Let me give you a few examples of this. In fulfilling Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8, the verse we read, in Acts 2, we actually read how the Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, came upon those early Christians. Now, Peter was one of them, which is interesting because then in Acts 4, verse 8, we're told that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's present tense, being filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So Peter was filled, the Spirit came upon, but then later on, the Spirit comes upon him again. And then in Acts 4, verse 31, of the same initial group, we read that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, another filling. And, the word, and then they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, while the first interaction with the Spirit leads you to Jesus, that conviction, with the second being the moment of salvation, when you've received Jesus and are filled with the Spirit, salvation, regeneration, new birth, According to what Jesus says in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit coming upon you serves to manifest in your life for two very important reasons. One, the first reason, is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that in a second. The second reason is for the receiving of power. Not to like rip phone books in half, or pick up cars. Or throw the football straight, as Tim Tebow claimed. Instead, it's power for a purpose. And that purpose is to be a witness of Jesus in the world around you. Again, this is what Jesus is describing, what he's referring to, when he says, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. As it pertains to this first thing, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures establish a comparison here between the work of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, and the work of John the baptizer. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says, For John truly baptized with water, but, and here's the comparison, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, speaking of what would happen on Pentecost. Jesus is saying that the Spirit coming upon the believer has a similar effect to what occurs when John baptized a person with water. There's a similarity here. Now, John's baptism was all about demonstrating an outward repentance for sins. Whereas with the Holy Spirit, this baptism is all about experiencing an inward purification from sins. Baptism with water symbolized, it, it, it was symbolic of the cleansing of the outward man. But baptism with the Spirit served to practically and continually cleanse the inward man. One was the show, the other is the real McCoy. According to tradition, if a person was considered ceremonially unclean, they were required to immerse themselves in a pool of water at the temple known as a mikvah before they could enter the temple. We discussed this at some length in John chapter 5. The act of immersing or literally baptism in the water it signified cleansing and impurity. Priests, before they could go into the temple to perform their religious duties, had to bathe or be baptized. Men, before they offered sacrifices, had to be dunked in the water, cleansed. Women, this was required after childbirth. Gentiles wanting to convert to Judaism also had to be baptized. This was a common religious tradition in Judaism, baptism. The Talmud actually goes so far as to describe the mikvah, or the baptismal pool, as, quote, the consummate Jewish symbol of spiritual renewal. Furthermore, what's interesting about the mikvah is how it was designed. Because the rabbis believed that impurities required living water, such as a spring or a river, to remain pure, the mikvahs in the temple were designed with an intricate plumbing system that allowed them to always remain in contact with a natural source of living or flowing water. Describing the results of the Spirit coming upon a believer using this common term, baptism, 
It's not pulled out of nowhere. It has context. This is not an accident. This coming upon of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, spoke of a continual and active spiritual renewal, a continual purification, a continual cleansing. Unlike religion, which demanded a person work to cleanse themselves, right? Constantly going to be baptized. On this day at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up and he declares, that's no longer necessary, for out of the person's heart who believes in him will now flow rivers of what? Living water. The very thing essential for purification. Friend, this work of the Holy Spirit purifying you, the baptism of the Spirit, it is something that takes place internally. It's not a physical baptism, but a spiritual one. It's continual. It's constantly happening in your life. It's not momentary. And ultimately, it's permanent, not temporary. Keep in mind, the moment you believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, a regeneration occurs. You are made positionally righteous before God, having been justified of your sins by the blood of Jesus. And yet, practically speaking, because your sinful flesh remains and will remain until you're resurrected to glory, hey, you're going to struggle walking in this new position you've been granted. As we all know very well, even following salvation, the struggle of the flesh's sinful desires and tendencies, it remains. And it remains strong. Even after you're filled and refilled and filled again with the Spirit. You see, when we talk about this epi, this coming upon work of the Spirit, we're speaking of the Spirit coming upon us for the purposes of renewal, of purification. It doesn't speak of your position in Christ. You're already righteous. But instead, it's speaking of the practicalities of you seeking to live a life reflecting that position when you're still dealing with the tendencies of sin. Because the struggle is real, right? It's necessary for you to be continually baptized in the Spirit. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's given to you for the purpose of it. You crack. Jesus mends, and the Spirit's filled again. Inwardly, this renewed filling serves to remind you that you are not the old man. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. The man of sin or the woman of sin is no longer who you really are. It's not your identity. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And it's in this sense that when you're baptized anew, filled again, it's an act of God's grace. It's not something you have to do but instead a river of the Spirit whose current you simply return to. Beyond this, as water is essential for a land to yield a harvest, the water of the Spirit is the only way your life can yield any type of godly fruit. Out of his heart will flow rivers of water. You see, godliness in your life demands the involvement of God's Spirit. And that's only logical. Amazingly, this river of living water yields for the person submitting to its current fruit of the Spirit in and through your life. Well, the first result of the Holy Spirit coming upon the believer is this incredible and constant renewal through the internal baptism. The second result of this work, this epi work, is that you would receive power to be witnesses of Jesus. Again, Jesus says this is a work of the Holy Spirit that what? Comes out of one's heart. It's something inside that works its way to the surface and then out. In the Greek, this word power, the word Jesus uses in in Acts 1, this word power, it's dynamis. It's the word we get dynamite from. Power. The Spirit gives you power. A dynamic, 
to be witnesses. It is, in the Greek, the word witness. It's literally our English word martyr. To be martyrs. The word describes a person who dies for another or loses his life for a cause. In this context, a witness is a person who's laid down his life not for Jesus, but to Jesus. No, Jesus says you'll receive power to what? To be witnesses to me. Not of me, but to me. Also notice Jesus says that the Spirit will empower us to be witnesses. Now, there's a big difference between being something versus doing something. The word describes who you are and not what you're doing. You know, dying doesn't make you a martyr. Dying confirms that you were always a martyr. Martyrdom, or being a witness to Jesus, isn't something you do, it's something you are. When Jesus says, you shall be witnesses, it wasn't a command to be obeyed, but was instead a statement of fact. The words, shall be, are in the indicative. They're not in the imperative. Jesus wasn't commanding you to be a witness, to become witnesses. He's saying you would be a witness when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Again, a natural result working its way out. Well, John refers to the Holy Spirit in chapter 7 refers to the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, Jesus instructs His disciples to wait for the promise of the Father. You have lots of different titles. The Holy Spirit, and then you have, you have the promise. This word promise, it's a noun, which means it's the fulfillment of a promise that was already articulated. Even Jesus affirms in John 7 that the Scriptures were clear that the long-awaited promise was that of the Holy Spirit, who would one day indwell God's people. No doubt Jesus is referencing Ezekiel 36, when God says through the prophet that I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take that heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, which will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. To John's point that the Spirit could only be given once Jesus was glorified. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus will later say, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And then he, he adds, for if I do not go away, the Helper, another title for the Spirit, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Consider, to what advantage could we find in the presence of the Holy Spirit that we wouldn't have in the bodily presence of Jesus? I mean, both are equal members of the triune Godhead, both equally sovereign, holy, and powerful. How then is it that the presence of the Holy Spirit is to our better advantage than having the bodily presence of Jesus with us right now? And the answer, unlike Jesus because the Holy Spirit lacks a physical form and is therefore omnipresent, the Holy Spirit has the ability to indwell each of us at once. To be in all places at all times. The gospel, the records are clear that when Jesus came to earth to don human flesh, he did so by willingly laying aside some of his divine attributes. For example, while on earth, Jesus couldn't be in all places at all times. Jesus was limited by his physical dwelling, his, his earthly tabernacle, his body. The Bible also indicates that the glorified Jesus still remains in such a state. We're told that Jesus, what? When resurrected, he ha still has a body. And that body ascended to heaven. And that body sat down at the right hand of the Father, an actual locale. Specifically to be our advocate, high priest, and mediator, as we're told in Hebrews. Additionally, at some future date, this same Jesus will come back to earth. 
from heaven and establish a kingdom, not the activities of the omnipresent. Now, don't get me wrong. Is Jesus in our midst this morning? You'll hear that, right, at churches. Is Jesus in our midst? Yes, he is. But understand, he's in our midst not because he's come to us. We're the one church with Jesus this morning. No, he's not in our midst because he's come to us, but rather he's in our midst because we've taken the time to come to him in spirit. John chapter 4, verse 16 provides this invitation. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace for help in our time of need. If Jesus remained on earth, my point is that the limitations of his ability to help you and your time of need would be obvious. But instead, Jesus knew his job in your life would be more effective in the halls of heaven. And thus, he says, it's to your advantage that he goes to heaven to fill that role. And instead, send a helper to you, to come into you, to fill you, to aid you, by providing you a power to live the life that God has called you to live. Jesus was glorified so that we might be filled with living water, the living water of the Holy Spirit. One of the most amazing aspects of the Holy Spirit, and I think the greatest demonstration of our need for this work of the Spirit in our lives is the fact that Jesus commanded His disciples not to depart from Jerusalem until the Spirit came upon them for cleansing and for empowering. And Jesus did this, why? Because He knew they could do nothing effective for the kingdom of God, nor could they be witnesses apart from the indwelling Spirit. It's amazing to me, right? That it was a group of men and women who had spent years walking with Jesus, who had seen the miracles, listened to the messages, witnessed both his death and resurrection, a group who have been redeemed already from sin by Christ's work on the cross. They've been regenerated. The Spirit's come in. They've been born again by grace through faith. And yet this same group of people still had a, an essential, vital element of their life missing. And what was it? The power of the Holy Spirit. Though rebirth is a crucial first step to life in Christ, it is by no means the mechanism that you can attain all that God has for you. Salvation, as a most glorious work, indeed provides you newness of life, but you must have the Holy Spirit infuse you with power from on high if you're going to be effective in living the life you've been given, the life you've been saved for. Think of it this way. Salvation might open your eyes to a whole new world around you. But without a complete reliance upon the Spirit's influence, you're powerless to experience it. You get saved and Jesus gives you keys to the Ferrari. But without the Holy Spirit being the gas in the engine, you go nowhere. Yes, I have the car, I have the Ferrari, but I need the Spirit to energize it, to power it, to make it move. I need both. The life Jesus died for you to live, friend, requires more than being saved from sin or receiving the Spirit. It necessitates you being filled and refilled and filled again every day of the Holy Spirit for power. We get real applicational. If you've had a miserable week, I mean, a week filled with failure, I mean, you love those kids God gave you, but you, you lost your cool. You weren't exactly Christ-like. You wanted to kill them, if you were honest. And you felt convicted about it after the fact. Or, or maybe... At some point this week, I know it wouldn't have been any of you, but hypothetically, let's say you said something stupid to your spouse, something hurtful. Let's say you stumbled this week. Boom, you fell flat on your face. And now you're sitting there and your heart, as you think about these things, is filled with a condemnation and a guilt. Do you know what you need this morning? 
if this describes any of you, you need a fresh filling to yield a fresh life. You need the Holy Spirit to come upon you and help you back into that current of His love and grace that's already there. If you're tired spiritually, at the end of your rope, maybe you even drug yourself to church this morning, you really didn't want to come, and you're unenthused about being here, and you don't know what to do about it. If you're trying to turn a corner, you deeply long to live a righteous life consistent with that righteous position, but you seem like you're running on, on fumes or every turn you just hit a wall. You know what you need? Fresh power from a fresh filling. You need the Holy Spirit to come upon you and provide you the power you desperately need to live the life He's called you to and to fulfill the ministry He set before you. The Christian life is not designed for you to do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Friend, you can do nothing for the kingdom of God apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the fuel that drives your relationship with Jesus, your walk with Him. You can't live a godly life apart from God's Spirit, nor can you engage in a lasting work in His name. I'll say this as kindly as I can, but you're useless apart from the Spirit's continual filling. So, this morning, I want you to hear something. And the quietness and the stillness and the solemnness of the moment, I want you to hear Jesus crying out, not from the temple in Jerusalem, but from the altar of heaven, saying, if anyone thirsts. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me out of his heart, as the scriptures say, will flow rivers of living water. And so, Father, that's what we ask.